Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Because it's time. It's it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Yes, you're listening to The Race Card. And I'm Ahmed Yusuf on Sin 90.7 FM, and I'm your host for this afternoon show. And before we begin, we'll be doing an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet, and we pay our respects to their elders both past and present. This land was never ceded in the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago, continue to this day. You're listening to a one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs, and pop culture with a little bit of a twist, as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues in Australia for the week. Today we look at, um, no, today we have a special interview with Eugenia Flynn, coming up really, really soon, um, discuss the Sovereign Talks conference in Queensland, issues with the attempt of solidarity between Climate Change March and the Indigenous Force Closure Rally, and a feature discussion on workplace, workplace bullying, as well as a little bit discussion on white student unions um and with me in the studio right now eugenia flynn thank you for coming on the show eugenia thank you for inviting me it's been a pleasure uh, yeah it's good to finally get you on the race card we've been talking about this for a little bit yeah yeah i'm really really happy to be here and have been kind of following what's happening with the race card and um yeah really really excited to be here and to be involved yeah i guess um to to give our listeners a bit of a i guess bio or intro into who you are you've um you've you've done a number of projects uh projects you're a writer producer arts manager as well as a number of other things uh you've i think helped cur- uh, curate an art exhibition yeah, um that's ha- right. hosted a discussion with um alicia shabazz yeah. and, and a few other things what are you doing at the moment um, well, aside from my kind of full-time job, um, I'm working on a couple of things. I support RISE. I see you wearing the t-shirt today, refugee survivors and ex-detainees. So, um, as a non, uh, refugee, non-asylum seeker, I take a support role in any way that I can with RISE. So just doing, um, kind of that support stuff with them at the moment and also working with Amar Rahman who I know you've had on the show before so working with him um, we have um, a discussion a conversation that's going to happen next week on Friday night with um, Akala who is an amazing artist that's come across from the UK so that's pretty exciting and we're just going to be doing more stuff like that into the future which is pretty cool yeah no it's very exciting especially with 
the Ilya Shabazz conversation that you hosted, mm. the Corner West dis- uh, discussions that Ama hosted, yeah. and then now Akala. So uh, I think everyone is is hoping to hear more discussions, yeah. whether it be race, whether it be identity, and all those kinds of things. And I yeah, think- I think it's good to have those discussions being led by people of colour. And that's the really exciting thing for me, you know, um, I know a guy, um, a friend of mine who's African-American, he's come across here and been living here for years. And he was saying to me, like, he saw, this is really random, but he saw an interview with Exhibit, the rapper. He'd come on a tour of Australia and he saw an interview of him on TV and he was just like, we need to have non-white people interviewing artists of colour that come across to Australia because it's just embarrassing. They don't know what they're talking about. They never know any context. Um, and they always try to relate to them in a really awkward kind of cringeworthy fashion. So I, for me, I think it's really important to have that, especially for me as a woman, a woman of colour, an Aboriginal woman, an Asian woman. It's really important for me to um, to be in the forefront. Um, having those conversations can be really difficult, I think, because we're always told to kind of um, stay back, to be quiet, to be demure, um, those kinds of things. So for me, it's really important to push myself to, to do more public stuff um, and to encourage other, particularly women of colour, to, to come to the front. People of colour in general, yes, um, but also really specifically women of colour as well. Definitely. And I think you're, you're, you're doing a lot of things and what I found really interesting is talking about those aspects of identity that you have. And, and I guess the question I have is how do you navigate identity with a complex identity story and, and how do you try to, I guess, give give enough, like it's, it's hard juggling all these identities and how do you manage to, I feel, I guess, feel sufficiently giving enough attention to every single one? Yeah, um, I guess, uh, you know, I talk about this a bit. I grew up um, with parents that were just really, really centred. So it was never any, there was never any question about our identity or, uh, you know, I've got three older sisters. We were never raised to think that we were odd or strange or, you know, it wasn't until we had interactions with other people and they'd be like, wow, you know, or make little comments like that, you know, like my sister had an experience at a party where someone asked her 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 cultural background and and when she told them she was Chinese and Aboriginal, um, they were like, that must have really fucked you up as a kid. And she was just walked away. She was just like, that is ridiculous. Um, and I know that for some people it is a struggle, but for us it definitely wasn't a struggle. I think because our parents were just really like, at the same time, just really Chinese and really Aboriginal and we had access to our culture and we were um, grew up in our culture and that just made things easier for us. Yeah. I guess a lot of people, when they talk about being biracial, mixed race, a lot of the time they're talking about X person, I would say X or black and brown person with a white person. Instead of yes. saying, say for example, your 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 um, case, indigenous person with uh, a, a Chinese person. Yeah, I, I find that that's really common, that um, quite often people only think about 
multiculturalism or, you know, when people make those really dumb comments about, oh, if only we had more mixed race babies, then there'd be no more racism, which is just false, first and foremost. And second of all, um, I find that quite often they just mean, you know, a a non-white race with, with white. And I guess, you know, in Australia, I think a lot of people want to believe that multiculturalism only started in what the 60s and 70s because of new waves of migration and we had the multicultural policies that were put in place by the federal government so it's kind of this mindset that people have that multiculturalism started then but if you look at Australian history um, you know my dad um, was Aboriginal but there was also Chinese, Filipino, Sri Lankan and Scottish all mixed in there as well and ha- having those mixed race families um, was really common in the 1800s, early 1900s was really common and for us coming from the Northern Territory in the top end um, because it is so close to Asia you'll find most Aboriginal people have some kind of Asian background as well lots of family names with um, Chinese, Filipino, Indonesian, Malay kind of all in there so that's really for I guess for us we had that cultural lineage so we knew that we weren't the only ones. I mean, we grew up in Adelaide. I grew up in Adelaide because my parents moved down from Darwin. So that was a bit tough in terms of um, it, it was unusual in Adelaide to see that kind of a mix. But I would always say to people, if you came up to Darwin, that's all you would see is Aboriginal people with Asian eyes or, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's that's kind of just really, really common in the top end of Australia. So northern WA, northern top end of um, Northern Territory and northern Queensland. It's really, really common. And if you go to outback Australia, it is so common to see mixed race families, you know, Aboriginal, Afghan. Um, you know, I went to Sejuno, that's where my husband's from for the first time. And I met a Bosnian family that had been there for three generations, like Bosnian Muslims. And, you know, I think that people forget about that quite easily because of the way that history has been written and constructed in this country. Then I guess, do you think the way we view I guess biracial identities uh, and multicultural in a sense is very, like you said, new age. Yeah, definitely. I I found kind of this year in particular, it exploded online like there was a – a visual artist who did a photography exhibition of biracial or mixed race families with biracial children and, um, you know, people were kind of – putting it up as this oddity like oh wow look at this and this is the future so there's this really big thing about mixed race people being the future and my thing is just like well we've been around forever in a day um and but I think that yeah it's definitely becoming this kind of um thing about how mixed race people are so beautiful and um a real sexualization of mixed race people definitely um you know mixed race women are very exotic the men are very handsome um all of those sorts of things um which you know of course we are but 
um, it's this real exotification of mixed race people. And I find that that's becoming, you know, this kind of thing about uh, they're really exotic and beautiful and all that sort of stuff. And then also um, that, you know, this is the way the future and it's going to eradicate racism somehow. And, you know, I've seen someone online say, um, oh, well, one day we'll all be brown, so then we won't have any racism. And I was like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> it's not that simple, is it? No, definitely not. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, in any um, relationship with people from different cultures, there's going to be issues. And, you know, just because you can love and marry someone from another race doesn't mean that you aren't going to be racist towards their people. I think we see that a lot. Yeah, no, it's like, and I think people always ultimately always see racism through this kind of this black and white binary and like a lot of i'm somali and the way somali people talk about asian people they literally call them indayer which means and translates as small eyes yeah so these so i guess the idea that um there there isn't literal violence there isn't issues amongst people who uh, you can say people of color but even that is you know it's a it's a politicized identity in some right um, but what I want to ask and talk about more is, I guess, becoming Muslim yeah. and uh, how how that happened and, and I guess how your family um, took to that. Yeah. Um, so I converted to Islam um, hmm, 13, 14 years ago. It'll be 14 years soon. So I was pretty young at the time. I was 19 and um, it was just something that I'd been introduced to over many, many years in a um, kind of osmosis kind of a way and decided that I wanted to do. So it was a very, like a profoundly spiritual experience for me, which was really important. Um, and I mean, it, it was, um, it wasn't easy to begin with. I think my family were like, why would you want to do this? And it was... It was not even a year after September 11. So I had wanted to do it for a long time. September 11 happened and I was like, hmm, and kind of put it out of my head. And then I was like, maybe I should just do this. So it was a very short time. Like, I don't think it was even six months after September 11. Um, And so I think my family were just like, why would you want to do this? And especially, um, you know, because we get fed all of the stuff by we, I mean, in the West, Western communities, um, get fed all of the stuff about Islam being oppressive towards women and all of that sort of stuff. And so it took them a while while to realise that I was still going to be the same Eugenia that they always knew. So I think once they felt comfortable with that, that was fine. I think my mum struggled being Chinese Malaysian and being around during a lot of the the tension during um, a lot of the, I guess, you know, the stuff that was going on in Malaysia between Malays and Chinese. So, and she felt that was a religious issue. Um, she was raised as a Buddhist and, um, and you know, there were tensions between Malay Muslims and Chinese in the 60s and she was around for that. And, you know, 
um, I think she struggled with it the most probably in that regard, I think. Um, and she eventually became okay with it. But yeah, yeah, it wasn't entirely easy, but it wasn't difficult either. Because a lot of the time when people think of, I guess, Muslim converts, they usually think, and they usually associate to whiteness, I guess. And a lot of the time, Muslim communities will be more open to, to white people converting to Islam and, and be like, oh, come into our mosque, come into us, and, and let's let's show you the, the truth, let's show you the message. How are you treated by, I guess, Muslim communities when, when you, I guess, first saw, I'm Muslim, can I join your community and your mosque or what have you? Yeah. Um, look, it was a it was a couple of different things. It, it was tough. It was definitely tough as an Aboriginal convert. I think because, um, uh, how do I put this? Um, I think because a lot of the Muslim people I was mixing with, you know, Islam, because of it being a religion, just has some really basic middle-class values. And I know that sounds really strange because not all Muslims would consider themselves middle class. But, you know, things about family and togetherness and um, all of that sort of stuff and maybe it was just the people I was mixing with. But there were times when I felt really alienated and there are just some things about, well, that were common in my experience of being Aboriginal um, that I felt other people would never be able to understand or relate to um, those kinds of things. Like, for example, health concerns, um, you know, chronic health disease. You know, I've lost both of my parents now at quite a young age and just all of those sorts of things. So, you know, a little bit of that. I think there was also, you know, there were some people that were just really racist um, when I you know, first encountered them. There were, you know, lots and lots of really racist Aboriginal people, um, you know, talking about petrol sniffing and making fun of Aboriginal people as though we were animals, you know, the usual black people are um, primates kind of really base level racism. Um, There was a lot of that sort of stuff and um, that was really difficult to deal with. I found that very shocking and, um, you know, then you had people who wanted to treat you like you're a celebrity because you're Aboriginal and you're a Muslim. And I think that, you know, some of that still goes on. It's like, it's like it gives Muslims street cred, you know, like, um, we can attract these people to our religion and, you know, white Christian Australia can't and, I think the, the, you know, the stuff with the McCussins is always brought up as this example of, look, Muslims, we're better than white Australians because we're able, we were able to trade with um, Aboriginal people for years and years before white people came here. So there's kind of this really weird mix of celebrity that goes along with it or objectification in a way. And that really turned me off as well. I was like, I don't want to be seen as an object. Um, and I'm not like a prize to be won. That's kind of what it felt like. And um, so that was really difficult. But I, I did eventually, I kind of set about searching for other Aboriginal Muslims. That was important to me to find them um, so that I felt like I had a community. That really helped. Yeah. I've, n- I've noticed in more recent times that there are a lot of 
Aboriginal Muslims, and I was I was surprised by that. Were you? Um, not necessarily. I think maybe some of it is. I mean, some of it is definitely um, converts like me, and I think some of it is well. I tend to think that maybe a fair bit of it is re-identification. So a lot of Aboriginal people who have Muslim heritage, who may be descendants from Afghan and Pakistani um, cameleers, who may be re-identifying or have always identified as Muslim, I think that there's a lot of that that's going on as well. Um, But yeah, I, I don't think I was surprised. I was probably pleased. I'm like, yay, more friends. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show, Eugenia. You've been a pleasure. Yeah, no worries. Thank you so much for having me. I don't know. I don't date white guys, which is really weird, but, like, it's just, like, it's not necessarily a decision I made. It's just something that just sort of came and, like, I've noticed a pattern, I guess. <laughs> um, do you think the pattern is, I don't know, like, a good, a good thing for you? It's worked in your favour? Yeah, it's, it's worked in my favour, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, are you fascinated with people from certain cultures more than others? Like, um, I like the Australian people here. They're really nice. Yeah, yeah, I like the Australian people. But maybe that's because they also actually migrated mostly from Europe. So, yeah, there's a bit of a connection already there. Not most people have, like, grandparents come from Europe and stuff. So they have something more yeah. to talk about. Do you have particular preferences of certain culture groups over others? Um, yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what are they if you feel comfortable with? Uh, yeah, I feel a bit more comfortable around Europe, people from Europe or Aussie people, yeah. Or if they at least speak properly English or, yeah, if they look Asian but they, they are from Europe or their parents are European or Aussie, then it's a bit, bit more comfortable. <laughs> no worries, thank you. We have to consider whenever we want to become a relationship first. Uh, I don't believe in religion, but anyway, I mean that the background of the business is important because, for example, a Muslim cannot become friends with a Jewish. Okay, so I don't believe in religions, but anyway, but it has an effect. The other thing is the one of them is religion. The other one is the nationality. For example, an Iranian cannot. Uh, there are a lot of cases, but you know, it's rare. But you know. Actually, so the nationality, for example, an Iranian cannot uh, marry to, for example, I don't know, maybe Chinese. So they have some conflict. So I think two things that I wish. You're listening to the Race Code on Sin 90.7 FM. Um, and now we're going to move moving on to um, another topic. Yes. White student unions. Interesting, isn't it? Um, and to do this with me is Amina Ziad. She is in studio. Hi, Amina. Hey. A little bit late, but it's cool. <laughs> Sorry. It all, uh, all good. The only thing that matters is we're here. And huh, now I'm trying to find... Ah, yes. So, so-called white student union page was created this week and purports to be a safe space to support and promote interests of domestic students of European descent at a university. The first post was published and and said we are we're forced to do we're forced to do a group we're forced to do group work with internationals who can't speak English. We carry the load and do all the work. While our marks are dragged down, it says. 
were forced to put up with this with this antisocial behavior of a particular group of students who treat study spaces as social spaces and constantly attempt to serve to re to reserve public resources such as computers. Well, this later proved to be a hoax. What I really want to talk about is this idea of white student unions and well aren't all student unions really white student unions? I think there is definitely a trend where people of color are deliberately kept out of leadership. Um, students of color as well, um, in terms of like a university or school atmosphere. I think what can be deduced from this hoax is that it's kind of like not hard to believe. Um, it seems to be in line with what is already going on, I think, in the United States. They do have several white student unions anyway. And so it's and for similar reasons, you know, they feel like there's an African-American society, there's an Asian society, there's Latin American society, but where is the white society? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And it's almost like, well, because you permeate everything. And the reason why these fringe societies, if you will, or these you know, marginalized communities exist in a university campus is mainly because their needs are not met, simply because the mainstream is already catering to a white-centric um, point of view. So therefore, that need is no... It's not necessary to have, like, a white society, if that makes sense, because it permeates everything. But yeah, it's definitely not hard to believe, but I think it's very telling when, you know, the otherness is so visible, like, hypervisibility of otherness becomes a point of... I guess, discomfort for um, not all white people, but <laughs> certain <laughs> white people. Hashtag, <laughs> I always have not to, all white people. Not <laughs> all white people. I have to preface that statement. Yes, obviously, you know, obviously, we're not talking about every single white person. But, you know, the small minority, you know, the moderate whites, you know, you just got to talk to your friends, you know, the moderate whites. Like, exactly. It's, it's just the 2%, right? And you just if, need to apologize you know, on behalf it, of them. Exactly. No, no, it's just, it's, just, it's just, you know, like, I know it's just 2%. Of white people but you know moderate whites are you doing the work are you really doing all the work yeah can that you, you could like, can you like hashtag not in my name for your friends for your white friends exactly, like, like not in, you, know, <laughs> you know like just you know all i want is an I'm apology taking, i'm taking a make out of it um it's just that that's <laughs> that's the way how you know white people talk to us and ask us to oh, apologize no. for things we don't do personally New Zealand is having a vote at the end of the year about changing their flag. Um, yeah. Would you support the idea of Australia changing their flag? Uh, depends to what. If it was the Nazi flag, probably not. Um, I don't know, how does one choose what the flag will be? I'm all for change, but I'd like to know what it's changing to first. Yeah. But as a concept, the idea of changing a flag, do you have any issues with the current flag? or? Um, no, but it does have tied to the monarchy. Like, if New Zealand doesn't wish to be tied to the monarchy, and if we don't wish to be tied to the monarchy, monarchy is a symbol of old times, dead times, we're trying to progress. But it's the New Zealand, so are they changing it to, like, include Maori tradition? Yeah, I don't feel particularly attached to the Australian flag, so, yeah, I think I'd be pro-changing it. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, like at least the idea of there being an open debate about it. I think that's important. Um, and who knows what it would be like. It's not particularly inclusive, I think, of all of Australia necessarily. It's pretty Commonwealth-centred. Absolutely. How come? Well, get rid of the Union Jack. Um, and, I mean, I guess the argument some put forward in New Zealand is that, um, and in Australia as well, is that it's a tradition and culture and those kind of things. Yes, but it also means a lot more than that. It means that you're tied to the UK and then you're not an independent sovereignty and that you're not an independent country. So it's symbolic. It's I don't know, quite honestly, I've not really thought about it that much, but I feel that something people are feeling really strongly about, then it's something we should be discussing. So if there's been enough people kind of going, I don't know, talking about this kind of thing, saying that we should be changing the flag, then I think it needs to be acknowledged that there are people out there saying that this needs to be done. And I think that's been around for a while. There's always been those kind of um, people talking about that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Me personally, I don't really feel strongly about it one way or the other. But if it's important to other people, then it's something that needs to be discussed. If you had to vote to change it or keep it the same? I don't know. I have to think about it more. Sorry. Um, here's, a, here's a list of, uh, of flags that people oh, have created cool. and proposed. Um, do any of them jump out at you or ones you might be interested in if you had to choose one? If I had to choose one, I really like number one. I think it looks pretty cool. It's, um, just for those listening, number one's kind of a, I guess, a boomerang on the left-hand side with a star, the Southern Cross. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I'd like, like, a mixture. If you had the correct, if you had the kangaroo on top of the boomerang with the star, that'd be kind of sick. All, like, all of the above. Yeah, if we just put them all together in one big collage. Probably number three. Um, so for the listeners, number three is, is essentially the, the bottom half of the Aboriginal flag with uh, blue on top and the Southern Cross stars. What, why that one? Why did that one jump out of you? Well, because it incorporates the Aboriginal flag, but sort of keeps to the traditions of what they actually are, as well as the Australian flag. Um, and instead of having it at the top left corner, like we do have the Union Jack, um, um, you know, it sort of demotes that, you know, in our flag, it demotes that Britain is there, but it's not really important. And if you put the Aborigine flag up there, then it would kind of denote the same thing. Perhaps the one with the kangaroo, I think. Yeah. People would recognise it. It's got the stars that people would recognise. I think most people would know what it was. Hmm. Out of just general aesthetics, I like the kangaroo one. <laughs> um, but in terms of meaning and things like that, I guess I'd have to do my research and see what I feel most, like, most connected to. Um, but I think it would be a really like, beneficial um, step to include um, like Indigenous Australians as a part of our flag and representing that. Just over a week ago now, the rally against forced closures of Indigenous communities was held. The times between the Indigenous Rights Rally and the Climate Change March came on the same day in almost identical timing. There's been people unhappy with how it's been done and some calls for tokenism by climate change organisers towards Indigenous people. On the line now we have Mariki Onis to talk to us about this. Mariki is an Indigenous rights activist and member of Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. Hello Mariki, thank you for coming on the race card. No worries, Ahmed. 
um, and I guess tell me what what happened with uh, with the rights with, with the Indigenous Rights Rally coming at the same time as the Climate Change March, almost. Um, well, the national organisers for SOS um, Black Australia called the fifth um, national action for the Stop the Fourth Closure rally, rallies, um, and that coincided with the um, the People's Climate Marches. Um, and then so um, there, initially there was an, there was ideas and thoughts about us working together and and sort of those kinds of things thrown around. But, um, I mean, it's when you... Well, it, we don't normally work with um, white organisers and white institutions when we're... I mean, talking from worries of the Aboriginal resistance perspective because we find that, you know, um, they always put us in a um, position of tokenism and we can't have complete autonomy and ownership over what we're doing and the message of the way saying. So... Um, it turned out, you know, then they kind of wanted us to... Um, well, we said, oh, you know, if you're going to have... If you're going to put them together, then, you know, we should have equal um, speeches at the rally. Um, we should march together and do it all that way. And then they sort of said, no, um, it's too late for that now. We've been organising this for a long time. You guys have your rally um, down the road. They didn't even want to hear our, what we had to say. Um and then you guys can just march your rally into um, the the People's Climate Rally and then lead the front of it for photo opportunities. So didn't even invite local organisers to talk at the rally. There were Aboriginal speakers um, at the climate march, but um, that none of the local organisers that had been organising around the um, the, the fourth closure staff were invited to talk at the um, climate rally, but we, they wanted us to, they made a specific point about having us lead the march for photo opportunities. So um, some of the organisers and some participants felt like that was a little bit tokenistic. Um, and I agree. I think that's very tokenistic. If you want to just have photos of our faces but don't hear our message, I think that's, you know, um, problematic for us. Um, so yeah, but we ended up just having ours in the same spot just a couple of hours before, um, and then people that wanted to join March with both had that opportunity. You, um, so yeah, talking about tokenism there, and actually, just the pure number of I think the climate change march. I think there were sixty thousand people there, and what kind mm. of I guess what puts me off a bit is that. Where is the same number of people with the forced closure marches? Where where is that same number? And obviously, climate well, change. Exactly, is, yeah, you know. yeah. Where, climate change is a big issue, obviously, but we're also talking about people's immediate futures. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think there is a direct link with you know corporations. There are, you know, it's it's quite evident that. Um, mining companies are the big drivers behind these community closures and they're also really big drivers um, in fossil fuels um, and climate change so you know there is a commonality there but I think what has to be said that is that you know the climate change mob have 
a lot of different groups involved, so that affects the numbers. But they also have paid campaigners, um, whereas we would never see those numbers if you if we had paid campaign campaigners, maybe. But all of our stuff is done on like no one gets paid. Basically, you just show up and um, and do your best. Basically, we just have a small group of organisers that get together. <clears throat> uh, hi, Marie. Um, okay. <clears throat> uh, okay. Hi, Marie. It's Amina. I wanted to ask on the tokenism as well. Um, I think a lot of people were under the impression that you were working together, and clearly that wasn't the case. Um, was this something that they kept on the hush, like they didn't really talk about it? Was this something that uh, came out afterwards? Well, well, it kind of it, it didn't really work very well. Like we the the normal the usual organisers were, I guess, I don't because there were um, certain you know without going I don't want to you know bag out any individuals or anything like that, and that's certainly not where that's coming from. And it's not a, it's not personal essentially, but we um, it it was there, there were some people that had interest in both, and I guess that they were organising it um, with both rallies in mind. But we but the the usual organisers um, didn't have much to do with the organising for this stop the fourth closures. But we did do a little bit anyway. I guess it kind of was a little bit. Um, a few people were put off by how things went down behind closed doors, but I, I kind of won't delve too far into that. Thanks for joining us, Mariki. Really appreciate your time, and hopefully in future you won't have to suffer tokenism. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Thank you very much for having me. That was Mariki Onus, a part of the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. Um, and I guess we're going to be moving on to our featured discussion. Yeah, so according to the Australian Human Rights Commission, workplace bullying is verbal, physical, social, or psychological abuse by your employer, manager, or another person or group of people at work. It can happen in any type of workplace, from offices to shops, cafes, restaurants, workshops, community groups, and government organizations. It can happen to volunteers, work experienced students, interns, apprentices, casual and permanent employees. So some types of workplace bullying are criminal offenses. If you experience violence, assault, and stalking, you can obviously report it to the police. Um, so what does this bullying look like? So it's basically repeated hurtful remarks or attacks or making fun of your work or as a person, which includes your family, sex, sexuality, gender identity, race, or culture, um, education or economic background. And um, what does this have to do with people of color? Well, there is a long history and legacy of denying people of color opportunities in capitalist frameworks. There's a history and legacy of keeping people of color out of leadership in these kind of frameworks, except for tokenism, maybe. Um, there's obviously the paid disparity, which is, you know, it can be delineated in terms of gender, in terms of um race, um, different racial identities, as well as the devaluing of people of color's labor. Um, this is where workplace bullying and casual racism comes into play and why it's an issue. And it doesn't seem to be very uncommon. And to talk about this further, we have Tori, who is an enrolled nurse, to join this discussion. Hi, Tori. Hi. Hi, welcome to the race card. Thanks for having me. That's all right. Thank you for giving us your time. Um, so, have you experienced any workplace bullying? And if so, would you be comfortable sharing some of that experience? Yeah, well, um, 
just a bit of background. I'm currently an enrolled nurse, so I did um, a degree for a diploma rather for a year and a half at TAFE. And during that time, you get stationed at different hospitals, get a lot of work experience for periods between, you know, two weeks to a month. And uh, my first proper experience of workplace bullying was during one of my placements. So during placements, you don't get paid. You um, just work full hours every single day of the week, and it's mostly you get paid an experience. And during this placement, um, you have a facilitator who guides you through the experience, teaches you things, um, helps you out if you need any help. And sadly, I had a very horrible facilitator. And um, I, no matter what I did, everything I did was wrong. Um, it was just, it was a really intense experience as someone who has never really had a proper job before and was just towards the end of my diploma. I was, you know, so excited to just finish my course and get into the working environment. And I found that the way that this woman dealt with me was very aggressive and I would be called out for things that I've seen lots of nurses do on the ward and it was part of normal behavior and it didn't really make any sense to me at all. And I found um, in terms of patient loads, um, we'd be given a lot of patients, which um, was a bit unusual. As a student, you generally have one the first day, two maybe the next few days and you work your way up. Whereas on the second day, we were given six patients flat out, just had to do all the work and with minimal support. And it was really difficult, I think, to navigate that process because being in school, we hadn't really been given the tools of how to deal with workplace bullying. But yeah, that's that's basically my experience. It was very tough and, you know. Wow. So that yeah. sounds a lot of like shaming and overworking when you yeah, were in was, that Yeah, it was really situation. hard because you don't get, not that you don't get any... Um, will to work but it's more you don't get paid in the end like mm. you're working and you're not seeing any results because you're not getting money to a bank account you're there for experience but when your experience is horrible there's no real motivation for you to go yeah i mean it's and it's also unfortunate that there's already a trope of devaluing people of color's work and taking that for granted yeah, and exactly. asking them to work mm-hmm. for free um and i guess unpaid internships is one of those continuations you could say um is this prevalent do you feel do you feel this is prevalent is there a way to curb this behavior is there a possibility of that oh yeah it's so prevalent it's not just something that i've experienced i think nearly every person of color i've talked to who has had to do either internship positions or unpaid experience or any sort of introduction job sort of thing has had experiences like that where they know that we're here to work but we're also here to work with no monetary value attached to it. And I think because of that, it's very, we're very easy to exploit because we're not here. We're basically here to do work and not get paid. Mm. Yeah. So it's easy to exploit people who aren't here to get paid because you're not really tied to the system in the same way that those other people are. And especially as young people, I find that because we aren't really taught these things throughout school. I think, you know, it's not a subject. You don't get taught how to deal with bullying in the workplace. You just sort of go out there and especially if you have pre-existing mental health conditions or disabilities or even in terms of race and your social economic status, all of that stuff comes into it when you're in a workplace and you feel like you don't match up to everyone else around you. Definitely. And so what would, what advice would you give to someone experiencing workplace bullying right now? Like what, what would your, yeah, what would your words be? <laughs> I feel... 
Um, in terms of, it depends on what type of job you're doing. Like as a nurse, we have a nurses' union, which works to help us with in terms of pay rates and um, patient um, ratios between patients and nurses, those sorts of things. So joining your workers' union, if you do have one, is a great step because even though it is an institution, it's an institution that is there to benefit the worker. And it's generally in institutions that you find in working class jobs, which is, you know, public service jobs, all those sorts of things. And thinking in, I guess, if you're if you're a young person who's doing who's in uni or is in high school, thinking with school supports is great. Um, you can if you have a teacher or someone who you can talk to about it and friends and family, just have a network of people around you who you know will be able to back you up. And document everything. Write everything down. Because on that instance of the bullying that I experienced, I wrote down everything. Every day I kept a little notebook with me. I wrote down every single microaggression. I wrote down every single time I was pulled into a room on my own and yelled at for no reason. And I wrote everything down word for word. So when it came to me pursuing the matter further and um, working towards getting this woman in trouble, basically, I had all the evidence. I had times, I had dates, I had people, I had witnesses, and I was able to back myself up. And it's sad that you will have to get witnesses and you will have to get people to back you up. But in order to state your point, I guess, you have to have those sort of networks behind you and those people to support you. Right. Okay, well, thank you so much for your, for coming on the show, Tori. Thanks for, thanks for having me. That's all right. Well, let's talk soon. Soon, thanks. See ya. See ya. Right, and um, I actually asked a few other people if they experienced workplace bullying as well. And someone who would prefer to remain anonymous um, actually sent me this message saying that um, her ex-boss used to say things like, what is that weird stain on your hand? Take it off. It's not professional. And this is in uh, regards to henna or Mandy, which is, you know, you, people wear it for festivities and they wear it on their hands. And um, the same ex-boss would tell another colleague things like, why doesn't someone teach the Chinese how to dress better and more professional and Australian? So I guess these are just examples of casual racism that does happen in the workplace. Um, but yeah, always know that you can do something about it. Um, whether or not that actually happens is depending on the institution. But well, it's, it's difficult. Like, unacceptable. If, um, just being able to talk about issues of racism or abuse in any sense, it's very hard to find tangible evidence because you're not going to get bruises on your face unless they beat you up. Um, you're not going to get... Um, everything is very invisible. Um, they might do it very subtly, like microaggressions, and that can be very hurtful. And it's very difficult to find solutions, especially when you, in many instances, might be the only person of color in this situation, um, the only non-white person in this uh, workplace, and you become the office joke. You become the trope that everyone wants to, you know, like, it, it, it's a very difficult thing to navigate. And I guess the other part that I'm thinking of is what happens if it's not recognized as racism? You know what I mean? Like, what happens next? Yeah, exactly. And then you feel so hurt by being kind of told that, hey, what you're feeling is wrong. Mm. We're not going to be uh, just, we're not going to be telling you, we're not going to be giving you any solutions. We're just going to be saying, hey, um, toughen up. 
buck up, kid, you know, go back and into the workplace and act like nothing has happened, basically. And I guess, like, part of the um, issue of that is that people do actually develop poor health. Like, they do become stressed. Um, it affects their personal relationships. It affects their work productivity, even in the workplace. And people don't, I mean, you know, you distrust your coworkers, you distrust your employer, your employer whoever else is around you and I, it's it's just not a good thing to happen and it's very unhealthy it is very unhealthy which i think goes back again to the lack of access of people of color into med- med- medical health and things like that um so i guess it's like a it's a much complicated issue than um people seem to think it is it's not just a matter of workplace um harassment or ab- um bullying it's it's much wider it has um larger connotations Definitely. And I guess that draws this episode to a close. Thank you for listening. Um, and remember, you can subscribe to The Race Card on iTunes at, um, I don't know, just by searching Race Card, as well as we're also on the uh, the app Acast. So you can, if you download the app Acast, you can find us there as well by searching Race Card. You can find us on Mixcloud by searching Race Card. You can find us on twitter by searching at the race card and find us on facebook by searching uh facebook.com forward slash the race card no forward slash race card show yes um and you can find me at ahmed yusuf 10 on twitter and goodbye from me thank you for listening What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.